Um, as we kind of start, uh, we, we're going to do the next couple weeks and finish out the Esther series, and, um, and bo- both of these sets of passages deal with issues of justice, and, um, and it's very applicable to what's happening um, for us in our world today, and we'll spend a lot of time talking about that next week, but um, we're going to read seven here in just a second. Um, and I'm thankful for Brian Gregory and his commentary has kind of led me through this today. Um, before we start, I kind of want to set this up a little bit. Um, I don't know how many of you have seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. It's Judson's favorite movie. Right, right Judson? Um, you know, Ferris, high school student, senior, he decides to take a, a ditch day and... Um, and you know, accomplishes more in a day than most of us accomplish in our lifetime. Um, but he skips school, right, with his friends Sloane and Cameron. And really, really, the story is about Ferris's friendship with Cameron and Car- Cameron kind of living out of his story and how Ferris helps bring Cameron out of that. That's the real heart of the story. But it's you know, it's all the fun of what a day might be like if you were a senior and had all the means possible to you and all the clever ways about you to get what you want. Like, it, it, it captured my uh, heart as a teenager. Like, I love that movie, and I, I wanted to be like Ferris. Like, like, everything about his personality and how fun he was, like, was somewhat shaping for me. Um, but his, in, in, the, in the movie... His kind of nemesis, well, he has several, but his nemesis is his sister, Jeannie, right? She, she's had enough of Ferris. She's like, she shows up at school and she sees Save Ferris shirts and signs because he called in sick and everybody loves Ferris so much they're concerned for his life, right? She can't stand it, the shirts, the signs. She, she, she hates that her parents play favorite favorites with Ferris, that they're... Their naivete, right? Um, she's had enough of his outsmarting of Principal Rooney, and, and, and she has to be a class. She has to work hard. She has to deal with all the stuff that, uh, that Ferris doesn't have to. So why shouldn't he have to? So she makes it her ambition to make sure Ferris gets caught, to, to get what's coming to him, his just desserts. Maybe you've heard that phrase before. It's, it's the delighting in someone else's misfortune, making sure they, whoever they are, gets the punishment they deserve, just deserts. In fact, I would, I would argue that memes are largely created for just deserts, right? If you've seen the meme of the guy who's hand in hand with his girlfriend but looking back at another girl, right? That meme is like, has a life of its own. And it's, in some sense, it's getting that guy his just desserts for what he's doing. Um, the, recently, the Karen on the plane has become a meme, right? We, we're interested in these stories and we want people to get what's coming to them for acting like a fool on an airplane, um, last night on Monday Night Football game, the Cowboys game, uh, the excitable Chargers fan, she became a meme this week. All of them are to capture somehow their offense or how they might be offending you, their, their sin, their social failure, to make it live forever in infamy, just desserts. 
It's why we celebrate when a coworker who cuts corners and comes in late doesn't pull their weight, when they get caught or demoted or written up or fired. It's why we laugh when the proud person who who carries themselves with smugness and hubris falls or trips and shows their flawed humanity. Why we don't just celebrate the speeder who, who zooms by us and then is pulled over on the side of the road five minutes later. And why we think private thoughts of their demise. Have you thought about this? How often do you delight in another's demise? How you fantasize about it? You hope in them getting what they deserve? Why are we like this? Why do we spend so many of our waking hours dreaming of people getting justice? Now, I think there's several reasons for this. Injustice does exist. An injustice that seems to go unpunished. Like, it seems to be that there's lots of injustice and it's not punished. We don't think justice will happen. And the waiting for that justice is the hardest part. We get tired of waiting. Justice is slow. And it doesn't happen when we want. And on top of all of that, there's this lack of transcendence that we're being suffocated by in our world, Right? Like, there isn't this thing to appeal to outside of ourselves to provide jurisdiction or jurisprudence. And so we lean into things like karma and in for personal force of justice, but that karma cuts both ways. We become the writers of wrongs, superheroes of the mind, and the imminent frame provides it in memes. We're like genie. We, we long for the transcendent. This is at the, the heart of every superhero story. Someone who will come in and provide recompense or justice, right? Like someone who has the right even or the might to met it out. Who can do it? Well, well we don't have the transcendent to, to rely upon, so we can. Or better, I can. If not in reality then I can do it in my mind. I can think private thoughts almost as an incantation and wait for some misfortune to fall. And then you pounce. If not in your I told you so's, then in the chambers of your own heart, almost gleeful at their fall. And we become in that moment, Jeannie, Ferris Bueller's sister, judge, jury, seeking to met out justice of our irredeemable older brothers, our life full of disdain, sadness, anger, morose fantasies of flipping their scripts. All right, hold, hold that, hold that. And let me read Esther 7. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet, and as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king again asked, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is your request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. 
If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. King Xerxes then asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he? The man who has dared to do such a thing. And Esther says, an adversary and an enemy, the vile Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. The king got up in a rage, left his wine, and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining, and the king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. And then Harbona, one of the units attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. And the king said, Impale him on it. So they impaled Haman on the pole he had set up for Mordecai, and then the king's fury subsided. This is the word of the Lord. This morning, I want us to consider Esther 7 in three parts. The first is the request for mercy. The second is the king's response. And the third is poetic justice. First, the request for mercy. Now, we left off a few weeks ago at the pivot point, right? The unexpected pivot. The sleepless night of the king and the providential discovery of Mordecai's unrewarded thwarting of the king's assassination. And it's there that reversal began. Haman's eager to call for a Mordecai's immediate execution. So in the middle of the night, he finds himself in the king's hall. And the flip. The king comes out, sees Mordecai, asks him what should be done to a man to honor him, thinking that it's himself. He says all these grandiose things. It turns out it wasn't him, but Mordecai that would be honored. And so There's Haman leading the king's horse with Mordecai in the king's robe, calling all the citizens to give him glory and praise. And his wife and his friends tell Haman, your downfall, Haman, is imminent. But there's still this party. He's still invited, and he's still the only guest. And and so maybe he shows up thinking that the tables will turn again, this time his way. And so the party begins, eating, drinking, drinking, and eating. In fact, so much eating and drinking. This is day two of the gathering that we're reading about. And the king is full of mirth. His wine has provided him that mirth. And he asks Esther once again, what is your wish? Up to half my kingdom is yours. Just ask. And this time Esther doesn't avoid the question. She says, if, if I found favor in your sight, O king, if it please you, O king, I want you to notice this response is unlike the earlier ones. The earlier one, she only refers to King Xerxes in the third person, but now Esther says, you, you, O king. Here, she appeals to her relationship, her close relationship to the king. She is is pulling him close, and then she pulls her people close with her as well. She, She makes two requests. First, she says, let my Life be granted to me for her life. In this moment, remember, she is revealing herself and her identity as a Jew. The first time 
This is publicly known. A member of the people who have been legally ratified with the most powerful man in the world with his seal and promise to be annihilated. And so her petition for her own life is incredibly risky and costly. And second, Esther requests mercy for her people. She, she is fully casting her lot in now with the destiny of her people, right? Like there were two phases to this, this throwing of her life into the lot of Israel. The first was approaching the throne, right? Uninvited and the risk of death in doing so. And now it's in making this request, making her identity known and requesting that mercy be given to her people. Her destiny is united now to the destiny of her people. And she says, For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, annihilated. And here's the rub. The act that was perpetrated against the king is the selling of a whole people. Because who has the power to do such a thing but the king and only the king? It's his divine decree that could do such a thing. The suggestion Esther is making is that someone has stepped into the king's role and began to sell away part of the kingdom. And if someone could do that, they could also be attempting to steal away Xerxes' power. And this is happening hours after the revelation of Mordecai's saving of the king. And what we start to see is the king was somewhat blind, uninformed of these three words. The exact same words Haman used in the king's edict. Sell, kill, destroy. And then she curiously adds, if we had merely been sold, I wouldn't have disturbed you. You see, Esther's wise and shrewd. She is attempting to gain the king's favor and his ear. She's concerned about the king's peace. She understands the level of stress he is belabored with. Our king has shown how easily dysregulated he can become. So she empathizes with his position, but at a deeper level, she is subtly establishing a connection with Haman's edict, which will become evident to the king as the event plays out. This comes from Brian Gregory. When, when Haman came to, to the king to sell quite literally the idea of exterminating an entire people, he said the following. There is a certain people scattered abroad, dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws. So it is not to, to, to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hand of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it in the king's treasuries. Now the key part of verse 9, Haman requests a decree that people be destroyed. And he will pay an enormous sum of silver as compensation. However, the Hebrew word for destroy is a homophone of the word enslave. In other words, the two words sound the same, even though their meanings are completely different. What appears to have happened then is that Haman solicited the king's permission to kill the Jews, but did so with an ambiguous word. 
such that when he followed the request with a payment of money, the king would naturally assume, mistakenly, that Haman was requesting merely to enslave this group of people. And so with that, Esther sets the trap. The one who did this has not just threatened the people, but the very queen, and he has also tricked the king. And so the request is for mercy that Esther makes is also made with a shrewd call for justice. And this leads to point two, the king's response. Now, not surprisingly, the king responds with what? Rage. He's been duped. He shouts out six monosyllabic Hebrew. See, these are words that you will miss when I'm gone. Hebrew words, which when then said together in a huff, would sound like like machine gun fire. Who is he? And where is he? And who dared to do this? And Esther is quick. A verbal finger pointing. A foe, the enemy, the wicked Haman. And then Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. What the writer does here is they put the king and queen on one side and Haman on the other. And what you're to visualize is the king and queen united against the man Haman. He's found out. He's the man. And then curiously, right, the king leaves. It's like he's practicing dysregulation techniques. He, he leaves. He's so mad, he has to step outside. Now there's a lot probably with this. Because it's his guy, his man, the hand of the king that's proven to be a traitor. Imagine the shame. The shame of Xerxes not knowing, the shame of leaving his kingdom in this man's hands, giving him signet ring to make laws. The shame of his own laws coming home to roost upon his very own queen. And the final nail in the coffin for Haman, when the king returns, Haman has fallen upon the couch upon which Queen Esther is reclining. That word, fall, it's the same word used for the fall of the lot, the die that Haman cast. Fall, the same word used when the king told Haman to not let Anything fall that you have said when honoring Mordecai. The the same word used by Haman's wife, your fall is coming. And now as he falls upon the couch, his destiny is set. For he violates a law that no one in Persia could be within seven steps of the king's queen. And so as he falls on the couch, he violates that law. The king enters, sees the scene. Will you even assault my queen in my own house? Are you, are you Haman, trying to take my wife with the same force that you've tried to take my throne? And the irony is that the king now cares so much for the honor of the queen. Think back to Vashti. It should not be lost on us. Like this king is not a reliable guide. He's he's been manipulated to wipe out a whole people. Blind 
to the irony of this very moment, and yet, and yet, hear this, he's the only one that can do anything about this injustice. It is this king who must met out this justice, this imperfect king. And this leads to the last point, verses 9 to 11, poetic justice. Haman has fallen, nothing left to say, he's silent. The, the eunuchs and the king's attendants immediately cover his face. In doing so, announcing his shame, his fall, his disgrace, the most powerful man in the kingdom is now powerless. Powerless to even cover his own head. It must be covered for him. And Harbona provides the words, you know King Haman, You know, King Haman has prepared gallows 75 feet high in front of his house for Mordecai. Maybe we should place him on it. And the king makes the pronouncement, hang him on it. And Haman is taken, his body dropped upon the spike. Evil is undone. Justice. The the man who was seated high above everyone else, the man obsessed with his own elevation, the man full of such hubris, he makes a spike higher than the walls of the palace of the king. Here, justice does mean reversal. The hidden plans of Haman are uncovered, exposed, just deserts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil. He's pregnant with mischief, gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull. His violence descends. That's the psalmist and the writer of the Proverbs. And there's something deeply satisfying about it. This is why... Genie seeks to take Ferris down. Justice, reversal. Oh, how the, the mighty Ferris must fall. There's a, there's a certain delight. The fam and I went and saw uh, the new Scorsese movie, Under the Flower Moon. No spoilers. But uh, let me tell you, I've rarely, rarely felt such delight at a fall of a character as in that movie. We, we feel this, y'all, because we have this deep yearning, a, a longing for justice to be done, for evil to be overturned, for the world to be set right. But the question, the pertinent question, is can it? Does it? Right, right. Isn't this why Jeannie attempts to find an ally in Principal Ed Rooney to find justice for her situation with Ferris. But, but can the Ed Rooney's of the world actually do this? I mean, look at Xerxes, the man who must make the commands. He has made countless bad commands and bad decisions. He's, he's the one that got us here. Xerxes has terrorized the world. And he's the one who will bring justice? Perhaps this is why our lives are full of the fanciful. Like in our own minds, we're all Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino. At the root of Tarantino's movies is these acts 
of violence done to enemies. We're all there shooting up the Hitlers of the world in the movie theater. We can't trust the Xerxes or the Ed Rooney's. So, so we think we got to take up the mantle of justice. If, 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 if reconciliation is going to happen, the high being brought low, the, the low elevated to the high, who will do it if not us? And I want you to see that our current moment is full of such thoughts and plans, discussions, machinations, the question of justice, the delight of the toppling of the mighty and the powerful, the the elevation of the oppressed. And because of our orientation to this, our lack of transcendence, our imperfect judge and justices, the oppressed often become oppressors. We, we demand reversal, oftentimes rightly so. I mean, in seeing Flower Moon, I was like, who will defend the Osage people? Who will speak for them? Who will provide them justice? Like, that's right and true. Now, in Esther, what's the answer? Xerxes. But what is the hidden move? The wizard behind the curtain. It's God, namely his providence, not, not impersonal like karma, not generic, but specific. A friend of mine encouraged me this week with the words, God's faithfulness is never generic. It is always made within a decision. When a decision is made, when a lot is cast, God's faithfulness shows up in the center of that decision. This is what we see here with God's providence. God's providence shows up. It's what sets things right in the end. And it does so with perfect justice and exact measure for Haman. God does it here in Esther through a hidden queen, a sleepless night, a reading and an unveiling. Providence brings the high low and the low high. It isn't first us, It is first him. Now he uses the second cause of Xerxes, the the imperfect Xerxes to enact it. God's providence, according to our confession, working through second causes. But but what I want you to see this morning, and maybe bank and hope on this morning, is in the midst of all our, our genie moments, all these moments where we're delighting in someone's demise more than hoping in actual justice, where, where we're unwilling to wait for the Lord to bring it, where we, where we in haste met out and create more injustices in our meddling, I want you to bank on two things. God's providence and God's character. God's providence is what's at work in the reversal. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Luke, before the birth of Jesus, shares a song, a prophetic song that Mary sings about the baby in her womb, the Messiah she's carrying. He has shown strength with his arm. Now, remember, she's talking about the baby in her her womb. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones Exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things and the rich he sent away empty. 
what Mary's prayer is doing is it's embodying the reversal that's in Jesus. He brought down the strong, the powerful, the proud. He welcomed and elevated the poor. He blessed the outcast. He helps the marginalized. He cursed, uh, cured the diseased. He freed the oppressed. He fed the hungry. He loved the despised. I mean, think about the blessings and the beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry, for for now you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you. Now, Now think about it. Think about the ways you met out justice in mind, heart, action, when you are spurned and hated and excluded and reviled. When, when someone says you're evil when you're not. Blessed are you, Jesus says. Rejoice in that day. Leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. But woe to you who are rich. You've received your consolation. Woe to you who are full. You will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh. You will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all the people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. You see, see, Jesus brings down the mighty and lifts up the lowly. Declination, elevation, reversal. How? How? Providence. At Calvary, it appears Jesus has fallen much like Haman. Jesus, too, is hoisted up. It's an act of judgment. Cursed is what we're told. It appears that the Son of Man was not the same bringer of justice as the Son of Man in the book of Daniel. In this act, it appears the evil one has won. Injustice has yet conquered again. No wonder we must delight in the demise of our neighbors, even more so our enemies. For if it can happen to Jesus, it can happen to anyone. Challenge the powerful and you will end up lifted up too. But what if in the providence of God, this was the way that he intended to undo the evil powers of the world? The Hamans, all their genocidal plots. What if what looks like Satan's victory is actually his defeat? What if the gallows on which he was hoisted was actually the metal stand of victory? Look at these two passages from John. Jesus answered, The voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And hear this. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And just so John's clear, He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. It wasn't him being lifted up in glory. It was him being lifted up in shame. That's how he was going to undo the powers. John 3, 14, And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish 
but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people loved darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, the Son of Man was lifted up to do what? Not in hubris and power and glory, but in shame. And it was by this shame, taking it upon himself, taking upon, him, upon himself the sin of the world, the, the condemnation that sin deserves. In, in dying an unjust death, Jesus is taking upon himself all injustices. In dying by the hands of violent men, he is subsuming all the needs for violence by our hands to met out justice. By dying for men and women who in their hearts wish for, hope for, delight in the demise of other human beings. He is dying for your and I's prideful assumptions that we can wield the judge's gavel. In fact, our God dies and in dying affixes himself in the dock. The dock and the judgment from the gavel of the holy God pronounced for all our injustices, seen and unseen, all our God-like thoughts, the, the secret and hidden incantations of our hearts. All our wishes for the great fall of both Haman and Mordecai. And in so doing, friends, sin is skewered by its own sinfulness. Death is defeated by its own weight. Here, Augustine, the devil was defeated by his own victorious achievement. The devil was exultant when Christ died. And by that very death of Christ, was the devil conquered. It's though he, he took the bait in the mousetrap. He was delighted at the death as being the commander of the death. What he delighted in, that's where the trap was set for him. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross of the Lord. The bait he would be caught by was the death of the Lord. And our Lord Jesus Christ rose again where now is that death that hung on the cross? God's providence, God's character, his love. God's perfect love. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things you and me, our flesh, our destiny of death, to be hung on the spike. Jesus took that on. That through death, he might destroy the one who has power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those, that's you and me, who through fear of death 
were subject to a lifelong slavery. That's what Jesus did for you and I. God's love took him to the cross to take on the weight of sin and the judgment of God. I I do want you to see that in Esther 7. How does Esther 7 end? The king's rage is abated. Why? Because of Haman's death. There's a reality in Scripture that the death of Jesus takes on the anger of God against injustice and sin. And because it's it's aimed by God's love, it's perfect. God's love led him to send his one and only son to die an unjust death for our just ones. And God's love brought the force of all our violations of God's law and all our acts of injustice upon the precious Jesus. And it's God's love and providence that will also, hear this, bring about justice in an imperfect world. Both the imperfect kind of Xerxes and also the perfect justice of all the hidden misdeeds of the oppressor and the oppressed revealed and undone in new heavens and new earth. You see, in this providence of God, the lifting up of the Son of Man results in the dropping down into the earth, and through this act, God will highly exalt him and and does so in resurrection. And if resurrection is the result of this unjust death, if the cross and the resurrection undoes injustice, then the power of the Hamans of the world will eventually come to an end. And their power right now, friends, seems unstoppable. And the oppressed quickly do become oppressors. But the Christian gospel, because of cross and resurrection, it calls us to hope and delight in the truth, not of our neighbor's demise, but the truth that God will establish justice in our life, in your life, and in the new heavens and new earth. So you don't have to delight in your friend's misfortune any longer. Instead, you can just Delight in the downfall of evil. Esther invites us into that. To delight not in misfortune or our electing judgment or the grace of karma, but in God's working to bring down evil. Trusting because of cross and resurrection that God's providential work is already underway. He's already ordering things according to his purposes, despite what we might see. And we trust that the conclusion of all things will result in justice. How do you know? Look to the cross. Wait with persevering patience. How can we wait? What can make your waiting easier? Resist in the waiting instead of taking justice in your own hands. And walk in resistance with your friends and your neighbors. Nonviolent resistance is a way of waiting, trusting in the God who works out justice. And instead of delighting in the demise, delight in God's justice seen first on the cross, delight in the freedom produced by the ways of justice through the cross, delight in repentance. You get to repent with your friends and neighbors that you wish their demise for. You, you get to experience reconciliation and you get to make repair and repayment. That's a gift to you. 
delight in mercy. You, you know, at the end of Ferris Bueller, right? Jeannie has this opportunity. She beats Ferris home, right? Ferris is jumping over things, off trampolines, over hedgerows. And she shows up, opens the door, and there's Ferris. And she has the opportunity to end it for him. But she doesn't. Why? I think two things. She sees the failure of the Ed Rooney's of the world to actually give justice when he tries to break into her house. And, and, and she's changed by love. Right? She, she has to go to like jail or whatever and she meets her future love of her life and her heart is just suddenly softened. There's some truth in Ferris Bueller, y'all. How can you delight in mercy instead of meting out whatever machinations of your mind? It's only love, y'all. It's only love. Your heart changed by the love of God in Christ Jesus. You don't have to hold on to your hatred and division. It's been crucified to the cross as petty as it might be. You might be like, well, I don't wish any ill on any races of the world, but you hate that your neighbor has more TVs than you. I use that because I have a lot of TVs. Like a lot. A shameful amount, actually. Delight in mercy because you've been shown mercy. You've been loved. And pray, vengeance belongs to the Lord. Give your injustices and reversals to the Lord. Hope and trust through your prayers, even as you lament, as you lament the injustice that you see, like Chelsea lamented for us today. Through lament, we are praying a word of hope that God will make things right because salvation belongs to to the Lord, and all his judgments are right and true. Let's pray. Lord, I know I'm so petty. I'm thinking about this sermon last night, and I'm driving down the street, and a diesel cuts me off, and I'm ready to met out my justice. I'm petty. considering this very sermon. We are all so broken. We think we can be harbingers of justice, but we can't. Sin precludes us. And yet, and yet you call us to love justice, to do it, sorry, and to love mercy to walk humbly with you. And so I pray this morning that you would help all of us, City Press, to, to live in this tension of ingesting your good news for us, that, that you were brought low so we could be raised up. And, and then the tension of calling us to be brought low so others might be raised up. Help us, God, to live in that very difficult tension. 
as imperfect as we are. And bless us in that work, God, both of clinging to the gospel and the promise that you will make things right and looking to the cross as evidence to that while at the same time trying to dance in this world with exclusion and embrace. How do we do that? Help us, God, we pray. As we come to the table, remind us that you are ever present to us, ever bending towards us because of Jesus. We ask this in Christ's name.